And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Glory to God in the highest, and peace, goodwill toward men. I think there's something about these words that we find beautiful, even moving. We, we, we gravitate toward them every year at Christmas. And whether it be through Linus in a Charlie Brown Christmas special or just in our own reading in Luke chapter 2, I think many of us find some comfort in these words. And I think it's because it's embedded right there in the center of the phrase. It's that word, peace. We all long for peace. From the very beginning, we long for it. From the moment the newborn comes out of the womb and is greeted by the cold and the lights and the hands and the noise and, and having gone through the tragedy of losing its home, it screams and cries for peace. But then on the other end of the spectrum, when someone is actively dying, their breaths are labored, and each breath is a whisper for peace. And all in between, we long for peace. Conflicts arise within friendships, within families, between nations, and even within ourselves. And so we find ourselves longing for some sort of temporary relief. We long for peace. That's why we see people run to substances. They, they, they run into relationships. They, they run towards money. They, they run to entertainment. I mean, we run to all of these things looking for something to calm the outward and internal strife that we feel. We run to these things hoping for some semblance of peace. It's part of the human condition. It, it's just who we are. We long for this. Above almost everything else. And I think that's why when Christmas time rolls around and we hear little Linus say, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. We find it almost speaking our heart language, resonating something that we have been longing for since birth and we continue to long for. Today we conclude our Advent series where we have been working through Isaiah 9-6, looking at the four names that Isaiah gave to Jesus 700 years before Jesus ever was laid in a manger. And so far, we've seen Jesus identified as the wonderful counselor. Uh, he's been the mighty God. Last week, we looked at how his love is like an everlasting father. And this week, as we come to the fourth and final name, we find it reflects that which we long for. So let's read it one last time together. Isaiah 9, 6, as we get ready to conclude this all up. For to us, a child is born. 
to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Heavenly Father, I pray that today you would help us to see your son, Jesus, as the Prince of Peace. And I pray for those in this room and those who will listen to this on a podcast who do not have peace. They're really, really struggling, whether it be because of a job or a relationship, the the status of their bank account, or maybe some things that are coming ahead in 2019, or even a health issue. It's, It's making peace very, very difficult to find and experience. And so, God, I pray that today you would just work through my words, but even more importantly, through your spirit and the hearts and minds of those who listen, and that they would vividly see Jesus as their Prince of Peace. And it would lead us to not run to all these various things that only bring a very temporary, unlasting peace. That instead, we would run to the true source of peace, the Prince of Peace, that we would run to you. So, Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts today as we look at this last name that Isaiah gave to Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible with you today, go ahead and open it up to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians. If you uh, do not have a Bible and are a first-time guest with us, uh, don't worry, I'm going to have the scripture up on the screen. You're going to be able to read along with us, but I'm going to encourage you to do one or two things. After our worship gathering, if you would just stop back by our Give and Grow table, we've got two different translations of the Bible back there. We'd love to make that our Christmas gift to you, and we'd love for you to just start making that not just a Bible that you would bring on Sundays if you come back to Riverwood, but that you just make it an everyday part of your life. Also, if you've got a smartphone, we encourage you to download it. You might notice some people in our church family right now pulling out their phones. Uh, I don't think they're checking Facebook and Twitter. Uh, They're pretty sure they're opening their Bible. If you do not have a Bible on your smartphone, go ahead and download one to it. That way, wherever you go with your phone, you always have a Bible uh, with you. as you're opening up to Colossians, uh, and if you're not quite sure where it's at, you can kind of use the cheat sheet that's up on the screen, or you can use the uh, index in the front of your Bible and uh, table of contents and, and find it. But uh, as you're turning there, just some background on, on this book. Um, it's really a letter uh, written by a guy by the name of Paul. Many people call him the Apostle Paul. He wrote what comprises about two-thirds of the New Testament. And most of his letters are written to churches, much like this one here. Some of them are written to individuals. But when he would write to a church, he would often write to a church that he himself helped plant. The book of Colossians is a little different. He did not plant the church in Colossae. You see, Paul tended to go to really major metropolitan areas. At one time, Colossae was an important city. There were several trade routes that went through it. But over time, those trade routes had moved, and so therefore the traffic stopped and people went to where the money was. And so this once important city dwindled to basically a village. And so it wouldn't really have registered on Paul's radar to end up going out to Colossae. The closest we think he got was to Ephesus, where he lived for three years. And it was about 100 miles west of Colossae. So you may wonder, well, then how did a church get started in Colossae? Well, it is believed that some of the people who met Jesus through the church that that Paul started in Ephesus ended up doing exactly what Paul was doing. But instead of traveling all around the known Mediterranean area, they traveled to their known area and they headed up into the, the region east of Ephesus, one of those being the small village of Colossae. 
And like Paul, they came in, they told people about Jesus. They just shared the Jesus story of him coming to earth, dying on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins and, and the invitation to place our faith in him. Some of the people would believe them. And so to disciple them, to help them, they start bringing them together. And it basically was the church. The word church just simply means gathering. And so these brand new believers began to gather together and this church ended up being formed. And so Paul ends up hearing about this church that's been planted. I mean, he probably knew some of the guys. Many people believe a guy by the name of Epaphras planted this church. It's a thought that Epaphras found Christ through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And so Paul has somehow received word that Epaphras and his buddies have planted this church, and he's excited. And so he does kind of what he always does. He writes these letters to these churches. I think his letter was kind of a dual purpose. One was to kind of say to the church in Colossae, Welcome to the family. I'm so excited. Like if you start off in chapter one, you start seeing how he just thanks God for this new church there and how they put their faith in Jesus. But I think he has another purpose. And that is he really wants them to have a very clear picture of Jesus and the gospel. It's not that he doubted Epaphras and the guys, like maybe they didn't quite explain it well. It's just that there were so many false teachings going around, so much pressure he just wanted them to know, here's what you believed, and you need to keep believing it. And it wasn't weird for him to write that sort of stuff, because he did it to the churches that he planted. I mean, just go and, like, to the book of 1 Corinthians. He planted that church, and yet that church was a mess. And what's he do? Over and over and over, keeps reminding them to look at the gospel, to look at Jesus, look at the cross. Uh, you can go into his other letters. And so he does the exact same thing he did to the churches that he planted, and he says it to the church in, Coloss in Colossae. But I think he just wanted to make it absolutely clear that he ended up writing to the church in Colossae probably the most beautiful, most poetic, most powerful, clearest picture of Jesus given anywhere in the scriptures. It's found in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. If you are a spiritual seeker, you're not quite sure that this whole Jesus story is true, I encourage you, not just to read Colossians 1, 15 through 20, but to study it, work through it slowly, and you will get an incredibly clear picture of Christ. You, you would probably have probably one of the best doctrines of Christ of anyone, because you wouldn't believe what just the, the, the world and our culture says. You'd be seeing what the scripture says. But today, I'm taking you to this passage, not just to try and shore up your doctrine of Christology, I want you to go to the last two verses with me, verses 19 and 20, because Paul helps us see why Isaiah, 700, 800 years before this moment, called Jesus the Prince of Peace. Because Paul explains, explains it very clearly, and I think it's going to help you as you understand this idea of Jesus as the Prince of Peace. So join me in Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. For in him, that's Jesus, for in Jesus... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So here's what I want to do today. I want to just walk through these two verses phrase by phrase. We're just going to break it down into three parts. And the first phrase there is in verse 19. It's for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you stop and think about this verse, you suddenly realize this is a Christmas verse. This is the whole idea of Christmas. Paul could have written this one sentence in one word. It wouldn't have been near as poetic. But he could have just wrapped it all up in the word incarnation. 
The incarnation is this theological concept that God took on human flesh. Uh, Other religions sometimes believe in incarnation. But kind of what separates uh, Christianity is that God, being fully God, came to live a fully human existence. And at no point did he stop being fully God. He was still fully God. He just had set aside some of his rights as God. He set it aside and lived a fully human experience as he still retained his full godhood. Now, that's all theologically correct, but there's one word I want to draw your attention to, because this word helps me just, I don't know, find a little awe, a little delight in the verse, and it's that word, pleased. It's that the fullness of God, everything that God was and is, was pleased to dwell in the person of Christ. Anyone here seen the movie The Matrix? Okay, yeah, all the old people put their hands up because this movie is now, next year will be the 20th anniversary. That movie came out in 1999. I feel really, really old now, right? It came out in 99, and there's this scene where Agent Smith, if he's kind of one of the computer type guys. He looks fully human, but there's this, anyway, I won't go all into it, but there's this moment where Agent Smith looks at Morpheus. Morpheus is this human, and he looks at him and goes, I find you humans disgusting. You stink, like just everything about you. He just can't stand humans. That's not God. God delighted in humans. Now, if anyone has an, an excuse to not like humanity, it's, it's God. I mean, God creates Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, puts his image in them, gives them everything, and they still sin and disobey. And so if anyone has a right to go, I can't stand humans, it would be God. But no, he delighted to be fully human. He wanted to be with humanity. He steps into the mess, into all of it, because he loved us so much. It was not an insult for the universal God to allow himself to be put into a human. It it blows our minds. We can't fully comprehend it. And yet God somehow was pleased to fully dwell in the fully human person of Jesus. Now, we talked about this so much more two weeks ago when we looked at the idea of Jesus being the mighty God. And so if you want to go in this further, go back on our website. You can go and listen to that message and understand that Jesus was fully human, but he's also fully God. But it's also that God was pleased to dwell in the person of Christ. That brings us to our second phrase. It starts there in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. If you go back to verse 16, you would see that Paul wrote that for by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. All right, so everything was created by Jesus. So if you stop and think about it, well, so if Jesus created everything, wouldn't that mean that everything therefore already belongs to him? And if everything already belongs to Jesus, why would he need to go and reconcile back everything to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. It's because sin came in and stole creation from God. There's a company right now by the name of Ring that has been growing exponentially the last couple of years because they designed a doorbell with a camera inside so that it also has a motion detector so that when someone approaches your porch before they can even ring the doorbell it alerts your phone that there's someone at your front door the camera activates and you can see them and if you want you can push a little microphone on your phone and talk to them through the doorbell pretty cool huh now you might think that it's so that you know they can greet their friends or just have the coolest gadgets or you know chase away you know the pranksters 
But the reason this, this company has been growing so much is because swiping packages off porches have jumped exponentially. Because as online retailers like Amazon and, and others are really getting into this delivery business, it means more and more packages are coming to people's front doors rather than people having to go to the stores to get it. Well, with all of this merchandise sitting on someone's porch, certain thieves think, hey, I can have a free Christmas. And they come by and they swipe the packages. And you feel like saying, like, Dora the Explorer, swiper, no swiping. Sorry, that wasn't that funny. Uh, that, that's the danger of making jokes at the top of your head. Uh, anyway, so Ring has been, been growing a lot uh, because of this phenomenon. But let me ask you a question. Who owns that package? Is it the person that purchased it or is it the person who has possession of it? I think all of us would agree. It's, it's the person that purchased it. The, the person who acquired it rightfully, legally. Just because someone has it in their possession doesn't mean it fully belongs to them. Even if they pull it out of the box and use it for themselves, even if they go and they sell it and make some money off of it, it's not truly theirs. It truly belongs to someone else and whoever they choose to give the rights of it to someone else. You know, it is kind of sad right now to think that this Christmas there will be people who are going to be sad and bummed out because the present that they had purchased has been stolen and someone else is going to have it. Because they know in their heart, that's mine. And I was going to give it to this person. Sin swiped creation from God. It's still God's. It's still his humanity. God put his image in humanity. It's like he branded them. And that image is still there. Yes, it's been affected. It's, it's like sin unwrapped it and tried to manipulate it. The, the, the image has been broken, but it's still there. You still belong to God. But sin stole you, took you. And so that brings up the question then. So Jesus is trying to reconcile all things back to himself. How did he do it? And that's our third phrase. The second, the last part of verse 20. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. All of us long for peace. But I think what we often forget is that peace comes at a cost. For instance, if you're having a conflict with someone, maybe your spouse, maybe one of your kids, maybe someone at work, you have this conflict. You want to have peace with them, most likely. Nor normal humans do. Some people like the conflict. But, you know, people that I actually enjoy being around, like you guys, you want peace. It's going to cost you to find that peace. It, it means you're probably going to have to humble yourself. You may have to apologize for certain things. You might even be right and yet to find the peace, you're going to give up your right to be right in order to reconcile the, re the relationship. Because ultimately the relationship is more important to you than you just being right. It's going to cost you something to find that peace. Uh, another example, uh, New Year is right around the corner. Many people make New Year's resolution. Some people are not at peace with their weight. They, they don't like how much pounds they've put on. And so they're going to go about this next year trying to lose some weight. It's going to cost them. If they're going to find peace with their, themselves in their own body, it's going to cost them some sweat. 
It's going to cost them calories. It's going to cost them sugar. It's going to maybe cost them a wardrobe. It's going to cost them a bunch of time. It's going to cost in order to find peace. Or to use Linus's words, peace on earth. If nations are at war with one another, the way that they find peace is for one of them to at least humble themselves and surrender. And that's hard. You've already lost all these lives. It's cost you the lives of your soldiers, maybe the lives of your citizens. It's cost you the money that you spent for these weapons. But yet it's also going to cost you to humble yourself and surrender to the other so that you can have peace. Peace always comes at a cost. When sin swiped you from God, Jesus was willing to pay the cost to get you back. Recently in England, there was an auction at Sotheby's. Uh, They're a big uh, firm that sells artwork. And they had an opportunity to sell a very famous painting by the artist Banksy. Uh, Banksy is kind of a a popular cultural figure in England because no one truly knows who he is. He, he kind of started making a name for himself by doing his artwork out on buildings. He, he would, it, you might think, well, isn't that just graffiti? But he would do these artwork and they would make very subtle political or cultural statements. And some people found their hearts moved by his work. His most famous work is Girl with the Red Balloon. And it first was on a building and now he's allowed it to be put onto canvas. And one, and his painting, when he, which he put on canvas, was going up for auction at Sotheby's. And so it came up for bid and it just kept going up and up and up. Started at 100,000 pounds and 200,000 pounds and, and 500. Eventually it sold for 860,000 pounds. That is 1.3 million American dollars. As soon as the gavel hit though, there suddenly emitted this loud beeping noise. sounded like a truck backing up and it was coming from the painting. And everyone turned to look at the painting And to their horror and shock, the painting started sliding down through the canvas. And as it emerged outside of the frame, you realized it was being shredded. Now, Banksy, two weeks ago, released a video showing how he, and he kept himself off camera, but he showed himself and and a few friends designing this frame. And every test that they did, it completely shredded, went all the way through. That was his goal, but something happened. The piece at Sotheby's got stuck and it only shredded halfway. And the funny thing is, someone was willing to pay $1.3 million for the full complete picture. And now that half of it has been destroyed, the value has gone up double or even triple. There have been offers over, of over $3 million to purchase this painting. When sin swiped creation from God... It tried to destroy it. It tried to take the image that is in you and tried to shred it. You would think, who would want a shredded painting? Jesus. You are his masterpiece. And even though sin tried to shred you and destroy you, Jesus was willing to pay anything and everything. He was willing to pay the exorbitant cost for you to be his but you see, the, the penalty for sin was death. And Jesus was willing to pay it. Paul makes it clear. He was willing to pay through the cross. He was willing for his blood to be shed. He was willing to give his life for you. Why? 
so that you could have peace with God. That is why Jesus gets to have the title, the Prince of Peace. Because he's the one who made everything. Even though it was taken from him, he was willing to pay the price to bring it all back to himself. That's why he gets to be called the Prince of Peace. Not someone from some other religion, not someone from our popular culture, not even us. Jesus gets to, because he was the one willing to step down to this earth and do what was necessary so that we could find that peace with God and God would be at peace with us. Now, if you're here today and you are doing great spiritually, everything we've just heard has probably been incredibly encouraging. You possibly right now are just worshiping in your heart and you are thanking God for what he's done. If so, I am so thrilled for you. Uh, that's, that's absolutely awesome. But I want you to realize that you might be sitting next to someone who's not feeling the exact same way as you. They do not have peace. Maybe it's because of a medical diagnosis this past year. Maybe it's because of something they know that's coming up in 2019. Maybe the bank account right now makes it really hard to have peace in life. Maybe it's a friendship, a relationship that's broken. Maybe it's, it's because of their job. And right now, it's really hard to think that we have peace. Because right now, it does not feel like God is that prince of peace, really aware of what's going on. And so for some of us in this room, it's, tempted to, it's tempting to be very jaded. It, it, we, we find ourselves maybe wanting to run to, to some entertainment, to run to you know, some alcohol or some you know, abused prescription drugs. We, we run to some pornography. We, 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 we turn to all these other things, just hoping for some sense of peace because it does not feel like the Prince of Peace is coming through for us. So where should you look if we shouldn't be looking into substances or entertainment or relationships or just more money? Where do we look for this peace? I have three suggestions. And I think we need to look at all three places. The first one is to look at the gospel. You see, too often, as we're looking for peace, really, we're just wanting temporary peace. And the thing is, some of these other places that we look, I mean, you can go and try every religion. You can go and try all these substances. I mean, you, you might be able to find temporary moments of peace, but it doesn't last because the next morning rolls around, the hangover goes away, you, you, you find yourself just in another bad relationship, and you realize, I didn't find what I was looking for. Paul is arguing that the first type of peace that you need is your peace with your God. Because the peace that you've been looking for is merely been tainted by sin. When sin swiped you from God, it tried to shred who you are. And so for you to find that true peace, that lasting peace, means your relationship with God needs to be repaired. So it isn't that you just need more money. It isn't that you just need a new job. It isn't that you just need some new relationship. You need peace with God. And the only way to find peace with God, despite what every other religion says, is Jesus. So you have to look at the gospel. Some of you here, you've been going to church a long time. Like, you, you've heard this gospel well, just like Paul in his letters, he's writing to churches that already know about Jesus. And what's he say to them? Jesus. You need Jesus. You need a clear picture of Jesus. You need to look at Jesus. You need to look at the cross. You need to look at what he did. Look at the blood and realize that you have peace with God. And so often what happens is we come to peace with God 
we start finding us, ourselves being able to have peace with others. We suddenly find ourselves being at peace with our financial situation. We suddenly find ourselves being content with the situation at work because we know the true peace that we need is found in Christ and Christ alone. So don't look to substances. Don't look to the presents you're going to receive this week for Christmas. Don't, don't look to these trips that you're going to be taking. If you really want lasting peace, you got to start with the gospel. Look to Jesus. Look to the blood. The second place I think that you need to look is at yourself. By this, what I mean is that, that sometimes I think we have unconfessed sin that we just ignore. It, the apostle Paul, when he was uh, writing his letter to the church in Corinth, uh, in what we know as the 11th chapter, he was writing about the topic of communion. And uh, that talk kind of morphed into this situation where he's talking about how some of you are ill. Some of you aren't doing well. Some of you, in a sense, he, he didn't use these exact words, but some of it, it was, in a sense, you don't have peace because basically you're not confessing your sin. As they were coming to the communion table, they were just seeing the bread as, as bread, as food. The, the, the cup, the, the wine is just drink. And they're just ingesting it, not realizing, not thinking, not remembering that that bread is about Jesus's body and that cup is his blood, which was shed for us. This is about God making peace with us. And, and they were just treating it like something else. If we're going to truly have peace with God, we got to look to the gospel, but realize the gospel says you are a sinner. You're far more sinful than you realize. And so we need to confess that to God. And so if there are things going on in your life and you're sitting there going, man, why won't God fix this relationship? Why, why is this going on? Maybe it's because you're refusing to truly submit and surrender to God. You're just wanting God to do things for you when you realize when you're forgetting, he's already done everything for you. He's already given you peace through Jesus. And so for you, it's, it's submitting yourself, surrendering yourself, allowing God to break you. And then as you confess that sin, and as hard as it is, as embarrassing as it is to maybe even have to go and confess that to someone else, it's sometimes in that moment that we then finally find peace. So look to the gospel. Look at yourself. And then lastly, look to God in prayer. In November, we did this series called Acts of Prayer. We looked at the Acts model, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. We saw that word supplication. It means to just bring your requests to God. And we looked at the story of the persistent widow. It's this story where Jesus tells about this widow who kept going before this unjust judge and she wouldn't stop. She kept coming, she kept coming, she kept coming until this unjust judge who did not fear God nor man finally relented and was like, I give up, I'll give her justice so she leaves me alone. And Jesus says, how much more will your father in heaven who loves you give you exactly what you need? So Jesus is inviting us to plead in prayer. Somehow it's like worship when we bring our words to God, like our groanings glorify him. And so if you don't have peace because of a relationship, because of money, because of a job, all these things, as you first look to the gospel, as you confess your sin, you now have, as the book of Hebrews says, you can now approach the throne of grace with confidence. And so you can come before God and just plead and pray and ask, saying, God, give me peace. And you first realize you have peace with him through Christ. And that right there now helps you begin to have this peace that surpasses understanding. It, it, Paul talks about that in his letter to the church in Philippi. That, that, that sometimes when everything around us 
it, by circumstances, by eyesight, it looks like this is not good. I, I, I can't have peace in this. And yet sometimes these people, these Jesus followers will experience a peace that surpasses understanding. It doesn't make sense. But it does make sense because their faith is in God. They're looking at the gospel. They've confessed their sin. And now they just continue to plead before him. And so that's what I want to do today. I just want to close out in prayer. A prayer that helps us to look at the gospel and remember it. A, a, a prayer that gives us a moment to confess our sin, but a, a prayer that really just says we're pleading to God for peace. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I'm the type of individual that I just don't really resonate with written prayers. And yet I'm going to read to you a written prayer. Some of you, you do great with that. And if so, awesome. I, I'll, I'm jealous. I, I wish it worked more for me. For me, though, I just often just need to come before God raw and honest, just, just me and the Lord, and Jesus is my mediator. And that's how I, I have my deepest times of prayer. But this week, as I was working on this topic, I, I, and honestly, it was an accident. I stumbled onto this prayer, and I realized that is a beautiful prayer. And I think that's how we should end this message and this series. And so I'm going to read this prayer. It's written by a pastor by the name of Scotty Smith. And I'm not going to put the words on the screen. I'm just going to invite you to close your eyes and listen. And as you listen, to allow whatever God moves you to make it your prayer as we hear this prayer for peace in all of life. So let us go in prayer. Lord Jesus, there's no part of our being chapter in our stories or place in the universe outside your interest and care. You are creator and sustainer, redeemer and restorer, Lord and lover of your people. Because of your finished work, Jesus, our father is at peace with us and we have peace with him. Hallelujah. Today, we come to you as the Prince of Peace, seeking a greater measure of your peace in our hearts, relationships, and circumstances. So hear our prayers. Grant us grace. Increase our peace. We pray for our marriages. Of course, Satan doesn't want our marriages to thrive or even survive because marriage is designed to reveal your great love for your bride, the church. Of course, we act foolishly in our marriages for we wrongly assume that the right human partner can fill us up. Oh, forgive us and free us, O oh Lord. Bring ongoing repentance, refreshment, and renewal to our marriages. We pray for our children, made for wonder, but prone to wander. Jesus, thank you for the privilege of parenthood. At times, nothing gives us greater delight at other times, nothing brings us greater frustration. Thank you that our easiest children aren't beyond the need of your grace and our most challenging children aren't beyond the reach of your grace. Free us to parent as Abba Father parents us. And Jesus, we pray for our vocations and vacations, our health and our hardships, our world and our worries. Into all these spheres, assure us you're working for our good and your glory. And lastly, we pray for our hearts. 
already made new by the gospel, but still temptable and seducible, capable of great nobility and great foolishness. Compel us with your love, gentle us with your peace, and transform us with your grace. Jesus, keep us thirsty for you, humble before you, and satisfied in you. And you're all beautiful. In peace-filled name we pray. Amen.